This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. realwatersports.com they are our surfboard retailer of choice and uh, they should be yours as well they have solved the shipping equation so real water sports is based in north carolina but wherever you are in the world europe australia hawaii indonesia it doesn't matter they can ship you surfboards anywhere in the world guaranteed to arrive in pristine condition and they offer a flat fee for their shipping and their surfboards are super competitively priced. So even with shipping, you can often get it to you cheaper than if you bought it from a local retailer. And more importantly, they work with a who's who of surfboard shapers. My local shaper, a guy that we've had on this podcast a number of times, is Roger Hines. And he just dropped a small batch of handcrafted, fully tricked out, tinted, polished, pen lines, everything. The board model is called the Time Machine, and it is a mid-length twin. It's something that he and I have actually been working on. If you want more information on the Time Machine, obviously realwatersports.com has it, but you can also reach out to me directly, and I will give you my two cents on those boards. But you can see these specific beauties on realwatersports.com along with the rest of their 1,500 board inventory. Place is no joke. So realwatersports.com phenomenal resource for any surfer and a must check for your next surfboard purchase enjoy Stu Kenson is our guest today honorable the venerable legendary San Diego board builder, Stu Kenson. And um, you hopefully have heard his name. I know Scott Bass and I have talked about him and he's been involved in the 
boardroom shows, icons of foam shaping competition a number of times, and his colleagues and mentors are a who's who of icons in the shaping world. But Stu's name perhaps isn't quite a household name. And that's a shame because you've seen the boards that he's been building for years. He's built Joel Tudor's boards for a number of years. He was building JS's boards in California. He was working with Rusty back through the 80s and early 90s. And so he's built as many boards and more boards than a lot of household names. But more importantly, He's built a wide variety of boards at the highest level. The best long boards, the best short boards, the best alternative short boards, among the best channel bottom boards. And then beyond all of that, he's a phenomenal surfer. So kind of the top of the list when you think of the best surfer shapers out there. So I wanted to have Stu on today to discuss, of course, board building, a couple of technical stuff, but also the state of the industry the way that the industry is changing and the way that the culture is changing. For a guy who came up in Southern California before Surfline, before Instagram, before any of that, at a time that required rites of passage and honoring your elders all the way through until this modern Instagram famous and Instagram shaper era, I wanted to get Stu's take on all of these transitions and the culture as it exists now. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here's my conversation with the great Stu Kenson. Good morning. Good morning, David. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah. My first time doing this. <laughs> Trying to first time doing a Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. My um, wife, wife had to help me set it all up. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna guess. Shot in the dark. Is your wife's name Shirley? You got it. <laughs> it said Shirley Kenson was logging on, so I figured that. Yeah. They her her other uh, moniker is the real SK. Gotcha. 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 Uh, who's the guy in the background? That is Colin Dwyer. Amazing. Is that a team rider? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's one of my guys up at Mavericks. Incredible. Him and Dunphy, huh? Yep. Him and Derek and Luca Padua and um, uh, quite a few other guys up there. Is Luca the kid that's doing time with Laird? Yes. Um, I read that story they did on stab and kind of poked around on his Instagram a bit. That was super interesting. Yeah. He's uh, he's a really good kid. He just turned all of 20 years old. He, he started riding my stuff when he was 14. Is he from San Diego? He's from half moon Bay. Okay. Yeah. How'd so you he, connect with him through Sean dollar? Okay. Yeah. Sean was riding my boards um, at JS when I shaped for them. And then, um, JS quit making boards here with us and Sean kept riding mine until he got hurt. Got it. Um, yeah, I had not heard of Luca before. What was interesting to me about that story that they did was the idea of following Laird's model of kind of like shirk the surf industry. Like who cares what they're saying? Who cares what they're doing? Don't try to fit in. Those are trends anyways. 
just focus on doing your thing. And there's a way to make a living outside of the surf industry. And that's never been more true now, but Laird was doing it obviously when he was kind of doing it um, when it wasn't a proven path. And, and so I just loved seeing that because they're absolutely right. You can waste so much energy chasing trends and trying to fit in. If you're just out there riding the biggest waves, doing the gnarliest stuff, people will follow you, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I, and you're absolutely right. As far as the, which we, I think we, most people in our so-called industry realize that the days of the big clothing companies, you know, sending out a bunch of money uh, to pro surfers are pretty much over. And, you know, and Laird, you know, Laird and Gabby, his wife are, they're incredibly smart um, about what they've done. And I've always felt that outside money was going to be the way to go. You know, you look and then look at like Red Bull and stuff like that, you know, Monster. Those are huge money companies. And and if you want to be successful in this, I think that's where you need to go. And Luca is a he's a really smart kid. He's really driven, trains hard. um, And he's he's definitely on that path with Laird. I was really glad to see that. Um, we, We use the word industry it really doesn't exist anymore in the way, you know, or when we use it, it might refer to the board building industry. There's still kind of a nucleus there and everything operates around a nucleus of supply and distribution or whatever mm-hmm. and manufacturers, of course. But yeah, otherwise when I was growing up and it was industry, it was like big movie premieres, parties, clothing companies, funding a lot of it. It's like you said, sending payments to a lot of other people. And that is all dissipated for sure. Yeah. Um. So I do want to get into your history and I got a list of that, but we'll come back. We'll kind of do this in reverse chronological order. I think one of, one of the main conversations I want to start having this year, and I brought it up with Scott Bass a week or two ago is um, the idea of the shaping machine of the um, surfboard shapers who are so um, good with design that they've almost transitioned into kind of like an, a realm of art. It used to be the conversation was hand shaping is art and craft and the machine is uh, engineering and not, you know, it's soulless or whatever. That conversation, I think people have stopped having and people understand the value of a machine. But I feel like in this last year or two, I've seen guys who are so talented on the machine that it's transitioned into this realm of poetry almost where those guys are on a different level than just guys trying to hit numbers for the machine. Let's start with what role does the machine play in your life? And do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yeah. And uh, I would, uh, I would describe it as this as I still handshape, um, but it's a bit of a catch 22. Um, first of all, I'm getting older. Uh, and trying to pump out, you know, the boards that I did 20 years ago is not possible anymore. I use the machine quite a bit, but what I will say is all of my boards predominantly have morphed off of handshapes onto machine boards. And I'm still, I mean, percentage-wise using the machine, I'm probably at about 60%, somewhere in there. Um, my, My big wave guns that I do for the boys up north those all morphed off of handshapes. Um, and I can, you know, if I had to handshape a board, I can do it exactly the way it comes off the machine. Okay. Um, another tool 
um, that I use is, is, you know, this is uh, Luca. He, he, we're, we're transitioning to flat deck guns for him or flatter decks. So I'm taking his programs and leaving them the way they are. And I'm actually handshaping his decks. Mm. Um, then I have the exact control that I want to have. So the machines to me are, they're not, they're not an issue as far as like, you know, being soulless and all that. They never have been, um, you know, you can, you can make great surfboards off of them. You can rep, replicate boards perfectly. Um, and then it comes down to nuances such as how the boards blast um, and, and those issues, you know, it, it's like the time test if for a pro surferist, you know, they'll pick up a board and feel it up and put it under their arm and kind of shake it. And, you know, they'll go, yes, yes, no, no, no. And it's pretty interesting because I think they're feeling the balance um, and the weight, you know, and I, and whether or not that is actually a hundred percent true, that's, that's debatable because I still believe you got to get it in the water and ride it. Mm. And the other issue is you still with handshaping and with machines is, is I feel you learn more about your mistakes um, than your successes sometimes especially on newer designs. You know, I, I like to take stuff out to the extreme and then bring it back in, yeah. um, refine it. And those are the types of things with the machine you can really, you can really do well. Okay. So you're, use, uh, you're not necessarily using the machine or the design portion of the machine. You're doing all the design hand shaping and then replicating with the machine. Yes, exactly. Got it. Got it. Got it. I just, I don't have to hit huge numbers and there's, I'm, I'm old school for sure. Um, I still believe that it's best to have the ability to handshape and that's, you know, that's just my opinion, but um, there are of course people that learn how to shape off the machine um, and that's all they've ever done. So that's not something I'm really interested in. Why not? Um, because I think you need to learn the basics of, of being able to have a thought in your head and then transfer it to your hands and then through your tools to actually shape something, you know, and because it's the design aspect of you're not just on a, on a computer screen designing an outline. Um, you're actually looking at the curves and spending the time to do it. So I think that's what it really comes down to is it's, it's the experience over time um, doing all this by hand and then being able to transfer it over to um, the computer programs, the CAD programs. I'm going to play devil's advocate um, to the guy who views the software as one of the tools and he's using his hands to manipulate that software. Does his board turn out better or worse? Uh or can an argument be made that it won't turn out as good as let's say somebody using hand tools? If they're experienced and they know what they're doing, um, absolutely. They can build a good surfboard or a great surfboard. Yeah. Um, to keep the numbers up and the quality up, I would say on a, on a big basis, if your if your company is, <clears throat> let's use JS for an example. I, I shaped for them for a while here in California. Their boards are beautiful. I, in my opinion, I think they still make the best high-performance surfboards in the world. Mm. They're able to replicate it board after board after board because Jason Stevenson is such a stickler for perfection. And he and his design team 
are constantly refining their boards. And they got a couple pretty good surfers down, you know, mostly in Australia that ride their boards. Yeah. Um, so you were saying in terms of consistency that lamination and obviously sanding comes into play. Would you, how much does that come into play? Is, because I mean, you are the one shaper doing, you can in theory replicate a board pretty accurately, but if you're working with multiple laminators, then that would be obviously a variable and multiple sanders, that would be a variable. So what do you think, how much does that come into play? Um, quite a bit, quite a bit. Yeah, um, if in my case, I have one glass shop. Okay. And um, the people that work on my surfboards have worked on them for quite some time. My laminator, he and I started at Canyon Surfboards um, in the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Um, he knows my boards inside and out. Uh, the sanders that we, that I work with, um, same thing. They've worked on my boards for a long time. They know exactly what I want. Um, and it's, it's great in that um, the quality of my boards coming out of the shop, they're pretty much perfect. It's a rarity when there's an issue. Okay. Um, and that's... Um, it's great because I don't have to worry about it. Um, the boards come out insane. My customers are stoked. Um, but yeah, everything is where it belongs. You know, give your, laminator, a, give your laminator a shout out. Who is it? Uh, Russell Imlay. Cool. Yeah, he and I um, started, you know, a long time ago, Canyon Surfboards, which was owned by John Derwood. And that's where I got my start. Uh, Rusty actually got me my first job there as a polisher. Um, and that, uh, that was a great experience. I'd played or, you know, I'd been around surfboards forever as a, as I shaped my first board when I was about 13, um, and glassed it in my parents' house, which they didn't really like, but that's what I did. <laughs> Inside the house. Yeah. We had a bonus room upstairs. Oh Unfinished my gosh. Room, I just thought, did you, good. did you not know better or you just didn't care? Uh, probably a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> Um, but it, it glassing is very important and it's much easier for a little guy like me than it would be, um, for a, you know, a company that's doing a hundred plus boards a week. Um, and there's another big problem with that, which, uh, qualified people to do the work for you, um, is, is a dwindling amount. You know, there, there are no new guys coming up, you know, or I, I won't say there aren't any, but very, very few they want to, they want to be laminators. They want to be sanders. They want to, you know, they want to throw hot coats and gloss. They want to polish polishes, you know, polishing is the worst job there is in surfboards, you know, but it's also the most important. So for, why, for, what, why is there such a um, hiccup in that workforce? I think that most guys just want to get into shaping, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, when you look at, you know, I'm, I'm almost 64 years old and the pretty much what Russ, Russ Imlay is in his late fifties and he's young for a laminator. Um, Crazy. You know, other guys in the industry are well into their early seventies. How much yeah. longer are they going to be able or want to do this? And it's just a shame that that knowledge isn't going to get passed down to somebody. Yes, it is. It is. But it's so, more so, it's more so that they're not getting, you know, people coming in saying, Hey, I want to do this. Right. I want to learn how to glass surfboards. Is there, so for those listening, maybe there's some kid or non or an adult who's listening, who wants to get in the surf business. 
that's a wide open career path for them. They could work with some of the great board builders in the world if they're willing to come in and learn from the bottom. Absolutely. Is yeah. there a way for them to make a living doing it? Um, that's a good question. The, you know, the, the, you still have to just kind of put your head down, but there, there, if, if you're, if you're able to work with your hands and learn and you're willing to work and that's, that's a whole nother question. Right. Um, especially these days. Yeah. There, there's opportunity there. Can you buy a home in Southern California doing that job? That's a really good question. That's a very difficult one to answer. And I, uh, in my opinion, it, you can't do it by yourself on that, on that salary, you know? Okay. There's no way. Is it a dirty job? It can be if you take precautions, which we didn't do as kids. Right. Um, you know, we were, we were elbow deep in acetone and we didn't have enough money for acetone to clean resin off our hands and arms. We just would mix water and mud. Really? So that's what it came down to. Yeah. In the front yard. So, laminate it, the board upstairs in the bonus room, come out and rub it off with mud outside. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Brutal. Yeah, it wasn't, that's just, that's what you had to do, you know? Yeah. But it, it's a labor of love, you know, and that's sometimes a, a, an overused uh, axiom, but it's very true. You know, I, I wouldn't have wanted to do anything else. Yeah. Um, so back to the question of quality and consistency. Um, JS you're saying is making some of the best, most consistent boards, but if you're manufacturing in different locations, obviously consistency becomes the question for the consumer was, is the consumer getting the same board in Australia that they're getting in America? Um, and then also I would like for you to explain you're working with great laminators. What is the difference? Define the difference between their work and let's say an inferior laminators work. Uh, I would say the difference is, um, of course, experience always comes down to the work done, um, technique, and technique is learned just, just like anything else. You know, you wouldn't take it to like an auto body shop. You wouldn't take an inexperienced guy and have them try to throw Bondo and blend curves into a fender um, without having the experience to have that turn out properly. And that's what it comes down to. It's about it's how you use your tools, how you use your squeegee um, on just basic laminations. You know, you've got different grades of lamination. A guy wants a really light, you know, pro style shortboard that's all four ounce. He wants one that's strong. He wants pigments or he wants tints. Um, you know, all those things come into play. And a, a very experienced laminator is able to do all of that. And it takes time to learn it. So I think we can envision what a poor Bondo job versus a good Bondo job looks like. Mm -hmm. But to an average surfer, the lamination, a quality lamination and a non-quality probably looks the same to the eye. Can you define the no. difference? I'd say um, the best way to, to look at a surfboard, um, be it you know a custom that go, comes directly from the manufacturer or in a surf shop is look at a sanded finish board and see how that is finished. And they're much better overall than they were, you know, 30, 35 years ago. A sanded finished team, team style board showed sand throughs through the whole board, you know, and you're not really, at times you're not sanding through the glass, you're sanding into it or you're sanding into a lap. But those consistencies, you look around the, the fin plugs and you look around the, the, the tucked edges on the rails and 
you don't want to see glass. You don't want to see, you know, glass fibers showing. And that still is an issue. So sand finish as a definition is kind of what you would see a standard shortboard in that isn't polished and glossed. Yes. Kind of a matte finish. And mm -hmm. so you're saying a sand through is where you start to see the fibers of the fiberglass. And that would essentially create um, a failure point or a weak point yes. in the lamination, correct? Exactly. Got it. So they can look at the board on the rack. If you see any fibers, don't buy that board. Yes and no. And I'll, <laughs> I, would say, I would say that because there's, there's depending on what, on what you're looking for, it, I mean, on a, say on a hard edge or, um, you know, the lap line on the deck, if you're seeing, if you're seeing sand throughs on that, that means that the, the initial lamination, which is generally on the bottom, wasn't cleaned up correctly you know and, and for those that don't know most surfboards are glassed you do the bottom first laps over to the deck then you have to grind that lap and if you don't sand it or grind it perfectly flat um, you're going to have issues and the biggest the other issue is um, resin rich areas as opposed to dry laminations and that's where the experience comes with using your tools using the squeegees you want it as consistent as it can get and and you know as I think a fair amount of people know there's all kinds of contours on surfboards, especially on the bottoms. You've got, you've got single concaves, single to doubles, you've got doubles, you have V panels, um, you've got channels, you know, a lot of times, which are very difficult unless you are experienced. Um, I do a lot of channel bottoms. I, I yeah. firmly believe in them. And um, the work that I get is phenomenal. Very, very rarely do I have a failure with a channel. So uh, quality lamination would be defined as full saturation of that cloth, but consistent resin, whether it's in a channel or the deck or anywhere throughout the board. Yes. And then obviously sanded properly, uh, but not too much. Yeah. It's, it's a fine line. You're working with such a small amount of, of thickness, you know, the layers of cloth. Yeah. And you're trying to, the sander, if, you, if your sander's good, and I'm sure you've heard it and others have too, the sander wants to replicate what the shaper has put in the board. And that's really where if, if they, you work hand in hand with them, it's, it's that much easier because they already know what, what I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's true. Um, Dave Parmenter years ago on this podcast was explaining that he'll leave an edge soft knowing because he has that type of relationship with his sander knowing the laminator's job would be harder if the edge is hard so he's leaving it soft to make the laminator's job easy knowing that the sander will put the hard edge back on in the final process yes that's very correct i do the same thing okay yeah, but again yeah. it's all about communication yeah and it's very important and it's in and again working you know with some of my people especially with russ my laminator he, he knows my boards and I know what he's looking for and what he wants. Got it. Um, considering that shapers do get all of the uh, shine or clout, can you, who are some of the top laminators and sanders that you've worked with over the years? Uh, let's see. Um, top sanders, Wade Largent at Diamond Glassing. Um, Chris Gary is a, uh, my sander now at Joe Roper's. Joe Roper glasses all my boards. 
Uh, he and his son, Jojo, they, they run a repair shop, very well known, great work. And they have a small glass shop that I use along with Hank Warner and Bob Metzfin, a couple of good friends of mine and a few other boards here and there. And the, the quality is just phenomenal. But yeah, Wade's, Wade's worked on my boards for over 35 years. He, I got to get him on the podcast. He's, yeah, you should. He's, he's very knowledgeable. We haven't done a lot of laminators on the podcast. We've done a few. Um, but yeah, not only is he knowledgeable, but just the people that he hangs with and the stories that he would have, I think would be amazing. Yeah. He's got good um, stories. Definitely. Um, so let's backtrack a little bit to your career. Tell me about early days with Rusty. How did you meet and how influential was he in kind of your career? Well, I moved from South Orange County in 1978 to San Diego and um, pretty much was surfing blacks. And that's where Rusty and I met. We surfed blacks together quite a bit. And um, a lot of my friends rode his boards and I rode boards from Tom Everly and Peter Schroff and, and uh, kind of bounced around. You know, I always wanted to have good surfboards. And Rusty's like, well, why don't you get a board for me? And I was like, well, you know, I wrote so-and-sos and wasn't exactly what I wanted. So he finally made me some boards. Um, and it was in the transition from single fins to tri-fins and, and twin fins and made me some great boards right off the bat. And that's where that started. So, um, you know, we hung out a bit and um, just got to talking. And he's like, you know, he's like, what do you want to do? You know, so I said, I'd like to get back into doing surfboards. So he, he got me my job at Canyon. He introduced okay. me to John Durward. And then um, the polisher at the time, really good polisher, Carl Eberhardt. I just saw him for the first time in about almost 40 years uh, wow. this last summer. And great, great polisher. So I started out and learned from him. And he was, he was one of the very best. And uh, polished six or eight boards a day. And then in the afternoon, I'd go work in the shop, the Canyon shop in OB. So that's where that started. And then uh, a few years, I did that for, I don't know, maybe three years, four years. Rusty was just kind of warming up to going out on his own with Argot. So he had been doing boards through Canyon for a lot of the top pros. PT, Sean Thompson, West Lane from the East Coast, um, and, and a myriad of other top pro surfers at the time. He did boards for Tom Carroll, for Shane, and you know plenty of other guys. So he went out on his own. And then um, I got married and uh, moved into Imperial Beach area and was starting to glass some surfboards again on the side. So he goes, well, you want to do some of these team boards? And that was, you know, glass on fin days and, and you know, get them out and get them in, get them out. So I was still working at Canyon, but um, summertime predominantly when we have the contest here, he'd do, you know, boards for some of the guys and he'd need them pretty much overnight. Yeah. So I would get home, I'd go pick up the blanks at his shop, take them home, lay them up, have them ready to be sanded by six o'clock in the morning, um, take them to our sander, and he'd finish them up, and that was that. So that's how I got back into that. And I'd shape boards through the years, um, you know, here and there, just as a kid. And he's like, well, do you want to shape a board? So I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I shaped a couple boards. Um, glassed them up and that's where that started again okay so it was it was uh pretty much just you know for myself in the beginning but they they worked well and i i've always known what a good surfboard is supposed to look and feel like 
uh, been really, you know, blessed in that aspect of knowing what I'm looking at. And yeah. that's where, that's where it took off. So I, I went out on my own and, and um, my boards were called evening glass, which is being kind of revived now as a specialty brand. And uh, Rusty and I had a shop together, which was called evening glass down in the South Bay. And then I went to work for him. Um, two questions that maybe aren't related so much, but what do you think Rusty's, you've worked with a lot of different shapers. What do you think Rusty's strengths are as a shaper? And then number two, when you started making your own boards, was it because you wanted to kind of create something that wasn't available from what Rusty was doing? Or were you just, you know, wetting your feet with the, the craft well, itself? Um, I, I predominantly serve Imperial Beach and that's a, it's a pretty little localized community. It's opening up now, but um, I just made boards for myself and I was interested in doing different things. And um, I wasn't always getting exactly what I wanted. And, and you know, to his credit, he really, he, and he still does, works very hard um, at building really good surfboards. Uh, to touch on what I think his strengths are is um, performance surfboards. That's what he was always known for. And, you know, he's, I haven't really paid that much attention to what he's doing now. I think he's revamping the company and looks like a, a comeback is, is maybe going to happen here pretty well, um, getting stronger. I know their board uh, sales, just like everybody else are up, yes. but that's what, if it was up to me and I could tell him what to do, which I, I don't do, um, make performance surfboards because, you know, it, back in the day when he was so strong and he had many, many people surfing, it was, you know, the, the unsaid battle was between him and Al Merrick. You know, yeah. they were the leaders of, at the time, modern performance surfboards. When and, I was first getting into surfing, those were the two key brands. Mm-hmm. Prior to um, Lost, and, I mean, having you know, a market share. You mean anybody can make a fun board, you know, or a mid-length or a long board. That's yeah. That's just the way I feel about it. But, you know, stick to your roots is kind of the way I see it. When he brought back the 84, which was the Ocalupo model, those boards are great. And I think, you know, probably, I I think overall, and I'm bouncing around, of course, but the level of surfing in California is not what it used to be. And it could be interesting people that are surfing, um, which there's nothing wrong with that, but that board, that 84, that kind of low apex boxy rail flat deck is an easy board to ride for anyone from a lower intermediate to advanced surfer. Yeah. And you can, I mean, other than maybe doing, you know, full rotation airs, you can rip on that board. Yep. I'm not built for full, full rotation airs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the other age, age will do that to you. Less limber. Um, Okay. Is there a market for the high-performance shortboard in the way that there once was? Uh, that's a good question. Very good question. And there's a there's a small percentage of the surfing population that still needs that. Um, I did when I worked for JS. They took they sent me to Australia for three weeks, and I learned so much over there um, about like there in Australia, which you probably already know but a lot of people might not. There are great surfers all over, you know, and I was in, I was in the Gold Coast area 
and you'd see guys that just ripped, you know, and they're, I mean, they were as good or better than the best surfers you see here on a day-to-day best basis. And those guys, um, they work, you know, they're laborers, they're professionals. Yeah. They buy their boards out of a shop for 900 to a thousand bucks. They break them just like everybody else and they go buy more, you know, and, and over here it was always like, you know, who, who am I going to get a deal from? And, you know, I want to ride for this person or that. And it's not that way over there. I mean, yeah, the, which the is, level of surfing is so high over there. And that's not even taken into account a 10 year old kid, you know, that you'd see at snapper rocks that just blows doors yeah. on, you know, anybody over here. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that those guys willing to pay a thousand bucks a board, break it, come back and buy more, not ask for the bro deal is why the laminators and polishers can afford to make a living over there and buy houses too. That's right. Um, this dovetails beautifully with a listener call that I'm going to share with you. If you don't mind, no, go ahead. Uh, we've got a listener line and people can call in and I'm going to let you address this question. I want to pin down what is, can you hear that audio by the way? Yes. Okay. I'll start it from the beginning. I want to pin down what is actually the standard shortboard. Is a standard shortboard supposed to be something that's your height and around, I don't know, however many inches, but like 19 inches wide for Southern California? Like I'm 5'9", and so a normal shortboard for me should be like, I guess, 5'9", 5'10", 19, and then 2 and 3 eighths. You know, however long ago, a standard shortboard was two to three inches taller than you. So a 6.0 or 6.1 would be what I was writing in early 2000s. I don't know. I guess my question is more along the lines of what is actually the standard shortboard? Because it's this thing that there's no real consensus on at this point. It's like, yeah, people say two to, three, two to four inches smaller or bigger than your standard shortboard. Well, what does that mean anymore? Give me some definite guidelines here. We need to bring some clarity because people just throw out these terms now and it's not clear. So fix it, guys. You're the man. You are the men. You. By the way, before you address that, you would not believe how many people don't change the battery in their smoke detector. <laughs> it's like a shocking number of calls, like more than half the calls that we get, there's a smoke alarm uh, detector beeping in the background. The worst part is trying to find the one that's going off in your house. And if you have high ceilings, you're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to answer that question, that's a, uh, that's, there's quite a bit there and I'll go in a couple, couple different directions. Um, surf shops, surf shops and big manufacturers have, um, especially with websites, um, lost rusty channel islands, you name it. They'll have models. They'll have, um, NJS, which they do kind of, they do their, their, you know, bro shapes or pro shapes and they'll have two different things. So it's really hard to pin down to me, um, for guys buying boards right off the rack, which you kind of need to do it most times, to say what's what's what. And you have to ask them questions. And that's where my relationship with my customers comes in. Um, I've got a real little shop. It's like literally the size of, of, of a two-car garage. Um, Hank Warner and I share the space. 
and our customers come in, you know, if they're able to, if they're, you know, local customers in San Diego, um, we talk about them. If I, if I already know the surfer, that's, that's one thing. But if it's a new customer, I'll ask him where he surfs, what his experience is, you know, be honest about your ability. Um, what are you looking for in a surfboard? Um, what don't you like, which is absolutely as important, if not more important than anything else. You know, what are you looking to improve in on your surfing? So that's what separates custom surfboards from surfboards off the rack. Yeah. Um, you have to have, and, and the information given on different models, um, you know, I look at Lost and I look at everything else, of course, but they're, they're pretty concise. And um, if you can think for yourself, you can probably get a pretty good idea, but it's much easier and better when you have that relationship. So that's kind of what it comes to answer his question is really tough because yeah. boards, um, they're, they're always being refined, but your, your, your tri-fin surfboard, your thruster surfboard, it's not exactly the same as it's been, but in the last 20 years, it's pretty close. Well, I think the terms have all kind of gotten a lot grayer. Like we used to say twin fin and I would just think fish. But now there's so many different types of twin fins. And then there's a, there's actually, you know, there's a traditional fish, there's kind of rocket style fishes. Um, and so to even just to use the term standard shortboard, I feel like is just an outdated term. And it used to mean what the guys were riding on tour. And I think for a decade or so, everything was based off Kelly and Al. And so the difference between number one and number 44 on the tour, those boards were actually pretty similar. The board John John's riding now versus what Gabriel was riding are so different, yeah. you know, that I, I feel like there's no standard anymore. Really. There is, like you said, it's all just so custom. Yeah, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, what it, what it, um, figure out how to word this. If you're looking for like, I don't think it's as important as it, as it used to be, you know, or as influential, maybe that's a better way to put it. Um, but um, boards from different shapers, they all look different. You know, if you yeah. want to take a board from, from Xanadu, compare it to anything else, he's been on his own trip forever. Right. You know, and guys swear by his boards and they, they don't look like anybody else's boards. Um, you have other ones that look similar to others, but, but they're still different. Um, so it, it really kind of boils down to what, what you're riding now and what are you looking for? Right. Because, uh, you know, in, in, in the very best surf shops, they, they probably don't have the time and ability to do that. Yeah. So they're, they'll, you know, some, some are better than others. Um, I don't spend a whole lot of time in surf shops. Um, I just don't. Right. So it's, it's kind of tough and, and there are, everything's a tool, you know, all measurements and description of boards. I look at them as a, as a tool and a description, um, volume and leaders, it's the same thing, but it's not that important. You know, a, yeah. a trash can has volume and you can't paddle over surf it. Right. Um, you referenced working with channels often and a lot. Let's start with, uh, what did you learn from Alburn? Uh, refinement and, and the importance of uh, so many things, you know, we spend a fairly short period of time 
uh, working, but the depth of what well, he, he came over and handshaped to my room um, at my shop when we first got started. We had boards that were on the, on the machine, um, but the, the, his boards were Ferraris, plain and simple. And he had so much experience, I'd say more than, more than anybody, you know, by the, you know, before he passed away. And the, the refinement in his boards was just phenomenal. And bottom contours that, that to the naked eye, people wouldn't see. And the reasoning behind it, you know, plus he was a great surfer too. Right. So play, you know, it, they work in everything uh, if everything's proper in at the bottom's right, they'll work in, you know, everyday waves here in California, um, soft waves, they work even better in good waves. They're really not limited, but to just throw channels in a board, if you don't understand what they're doing and, and the bottom contours can be a mistake. So and where is, where, the, you know, of course the axiom comes, you know, the, the description, oh, they're only good in good waves, or you can only ride them in Bali. You know, they they don't work in bumpy surf. That's not necessarily true. Um, the ones that work in bumpy surf versus perfect surf, are they different styles of channels? No, they're pretty much the same. They're, they're bottom contours. It's the way the bottoms are put together. It's, it's water entry into the fin area. It's rockers are incredibly important. Um, there's other things I won't go into, little secret things, but um, it makes a big difference, you know? Uh, so, yeah, I, I've, I, I learned a ton from AB okay. and um, really, really great experience working with him. Um, I know you said your time with him was limited. Did he, uh, did he explain? So was it just theory that he was explaining or did he just walk you through and show you the technique of how to apply these things. Cause it, it almost seems like you don't have enough time to learn the technique unless you're working with them for years and years. But if somebody can translate a theory that you can then experience or like expound upon through your years in the shaping bay, then maybe that would be more effective. Uh, yes. I, uh, to backtrack a little bit. Um, when I started shaping my own boards again, I started ma also making channel bottoms cause I loved them. Um, and I had good ones from Rusty and a couple other people. Um, they work, they work really good. There's another local shaper hero who I have to talk about and that's David Craig. And he's not super well-known. He's really well-known in San Diego area. He made me boards in the early eighties, um, that were phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, they were mostly six channel tri-fins and I was actually glassing boards for him in a little shop down here and they were amazing. And one of the most under rated under uh, appreciated shapers there are. So that's where I got, I basically based my channel bottoms that I started on after his and they work great. But when you, you know, I got the opportunity to work with, with AB and uh, it was great because he, we spent a lot of time in a short period of time. He worked, he was here for about three weeks and we worked side by side the whole time. So I was able to see all the nuances in his boards and why he did certain things. And mine are not exactly like his. And again, the biggest reason is he did spend most of his time surfing really good waves. He had great waves on the Gold Coast. He went to Bali all the time. He still went to Hawaii. So um, mine are kind of conditioned more for wherever your conditions are, but it's California. Yeah. 
you know, now the board, if I get a, a guy that serves blacks and he wants a channel bottom for blacks, you know, a size, that one's different than what I would make for like an, uh, an everyday channel bottom. Um, and I'm still, I actually have some more six channels coming. Um, seasonally, I like to do them in the wintertime. New, new fins to go with them that are based on ABs because you can't get those fins anymore. FCS doesn't make them. Um, but I do a lot of four channel twinsers. And that's pretty much what I'm known for. I do channels, I do regular bottoms, but they are an enhancement. And the best way I can describe it, if a channel bottom is built properly, you can ride it in, you know, junky small waves. It's not going to catch small, slow waves. It's really not going to get um, to kick into that extra gear. And that's another way I describe it. You know, it's like the difference between, you know, a four speed manual to a six speed manual. Um, when you need that extra drive, that will enable you to have it. You know, if you've got a lined up wave and you need to get from point A to point B, um, channel bottom will help you do that. The important parts are design it properly so it still turns and it's still responsive. Got it. Um, are you putting channels in the Mavericks guns that you're building? No. No, I've okay. got a very specific bottom that I use on, on all my boards. Um, the uh, like Luca and some of the other boys up there, Thomas Lumgard, um, they're they've been kind of concentrating on the left when they can when they can get the right conditions. Uh, this last one we had a few weeks ago, the left was really good, yeah. super hard wave to ride. Totally, um, really bulls in on itself. It compresses, um, and if you don't have the the right components built into the board, it doesn't fit the face. Same thing on the right, um, but. Try to build a board that's forgiving, that paddles well, um, big sweet spot in it. That's the other thing, you know, because they're making a late drop and not always standing right where they want to be. So those are some of the issues there. Um, you talked about doing the flat deck. Is that what you said with Luca's board? Yeah. So are you still maintaining the same rocker, but just a flat deck? Yeah. Bottoms are exactly the same. That we've that we've been doing for for quite a number of, you know number of years here um depending on what he's looking for I, I end up putting a bit more v in his boards off the tail i run it off the tail so again it's it's more responsive and it fits better in the face um i i i you know the old axiom on guns was waves are big waves to have enough power you don't need to make the board go fast. And I firmly don't believe that at all. I want my guys to get in. Um, it's simple, but it's not. There's a lot involved. You know, they need to, they need to be able to set their edge and have control over it. You know, if the board, they hit a bump, the board comes out of the water. I want it to land and have them able to still, you know, most of the time make that drop. Um, and that's, you know, gets into another part where I, I do all four fins up there. I use all quads for my guns up north. Tri fins to me are, are not happening. Um, if you're in a bigger, softer wave, um, not that, that Ocean Beach, San Francisco is a softer wave, but it's not as critical as those big, thick slabs. And uh, I've seen too many guys on tri fins that they'll get air underneath their board um, they'll go to reset it and the board wants to drive straight down the face instead of the line that they needed to take. Um, and they run out of gas off the bottom. 
now that you know that's an arguable point but um when i watch especially big wave surfers i watch what their board's doing not so much what they are and you see guys i mean there's waves you can't make but there are waves that guys literally can't put their board on a rail to do a turn off the bottom um and that's that you know and again it gets back to refinement and i've been lucky to work with really good surfers up there um in addition to that there's a uh, he doesn't you don't hear about him much anymore but really really good surfer he was in that second um group of surfers that started surfing mavericks his name's matt ambrose yeah um, he's from pacifica and matt is you know just a legend and we talked and worked together on bottom design um and he was a great benefit to my ability to build boards for those guys the quad setup does that is that for grip or is it for speed? It's for speed because you're not dragging a center fin through the water and it's for maneuverability and control. So both. Um, yeah. What size are the fins? Are they big or small or medium? No, they're fairly small. You know, they're there. You have all your fin out on the rail. Um, you have plenty of area and you don't want to over fin that board. So again, it, you, you can't control it. Yeah similar size to what you would ride on like a six foot quad yeah yeah real similar um okay. a stiffer fin you know most guys are using fins made out of g10 epoxy yeah um, from futures is known for doing quite a few of them i have uh naked viking doing mine yep so um they're great guys to work with and they make a really good you know fine foiled fin mvs the Digital Vans Triple Crown of Surfing has returned to the North Shore and is in its final days, actually. The event goes from December 21st to January 21st, of course, at Haleiwa for the Hawaiian Pro, at Sunset for the Vans World Cup of Surfing, and of course, at Bonsai Pipeline for the Vans Pipe Masters. They will be awarding individual event titles to both the men and the women, and then overall Vans Triple Crown Series champs. Submissions are all now live. They're being updated daily. It is absolutely going off. Baron Mamiya jumped out into the lead over John John Florence um, on the men's side of things. And then Betty Lou Sakura Johnson posted a banger of a clip from Haleiwa. You can check out all this stuff on VansTripleCrownOfSurfing.com and on Instagram at VansTripleCrownSurf. I encourage you to get over there and check it out. I have a feeling John John and Carissa are probably going to drop some insane clips. I know John John's been out at Sunset, Hollywood, of course, at Pipeline. And uh, I just have not seen those clips pop up on Vans's website yet, but I have a feeling he's going to drop them. I have a feeling he will jump into the lead at the last minute. And I'm expecting big things from Carissa as well. But it's great to see these younger kids also um, maintaining a lead for a couple of weeks now. So Vans Triple Crown of Surfing.com. Vans, by the way, I've been mentioning a number of their partnerships each week, one of whom is Textured Waves. Textured Waves was created to shine a light on the culture and sport of women surfing and highlight women of color and underrepresented demographics through representation of community and sisterly camaraderie. The ocean means something to everyone, and for the women of Textured Wave, it represents a renewed self-acceptance and self-expression that brings them back to their natural state, connecting them with the fabric of the earth. It means creating a safe and inviting space. So Vans is partnered with Textured Waves, and I encourage you to learn more and check them out at texturedwaves.com. 
So what's the benefit talking about that Luca flat deck? What's the benefit of the flat deck at Mavericks? Um, it's going to give you a bigger sweet spot on the deck. Uh, we're trying to, there's so many things you're trying to do with a gun. You're trying to keep as much volume as possible and yet still have a rail that isn't too big and blocky. So you can't, um, you can't maneuver and you can't turn. So we, we try to, what we're doing now with the flat deck is it's not perfectly flat, but it has the same uh, rail profile that, that they like and that I like to make for up there. And then we're taking out foam um, probably anywhere from, depending on the size of the board, say on a typical 9.2 to 9.6. Um, I leave the profile full forward um, by about 36 inches or so, somewhere in there. And then I go with a beak nose just so I can, I'd like to hide more foam in those boards. Mm -hmm. But the flatter deck is going to give you an easier surface to stand on. And if you, you got a late drop and you're not quite in the exact spot you want to be, you can still uh, get it together um, and be able to turn, make the wave. And they're, you know, they're in thick wetsuits and thick booties and all that. So any benefit to where you can give them a board that's easier to ride. And that's what I'm, what I'm, you know, looking for, that's what we'll do. Got and it. Luke is great because he's open to different ideas and we can talk. We start talking about the next season's boards in the summertime, you know, and he, he, uh, he knows Kai, Kai's on, Kai Lenny's on flat decks and some other guys are. Um, and I think that is going to be the next leap and big way of paddle surfing. Good. Anything that can make it uh, more predictable and easier on, on the riders way to go. Right. The flat decks that I've ridden in short boards, like the rusty 84, mm -hmm. um, they're less sensitive, obviously for like toe and heel kind of subtle adjustments, but yeah, on a gun, you don't really need that sensitivity, right? Cause you're drawing into a big line. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different, you know, you can't even compare what those guys do to, to regular surfing. Totally. Um, so I did a podcast with Derek Dunphy a couple of months back and he was mm -hmm. raving about a gun that he got from you that ended up flying off of his car or out of his truck. I'm sure you know the board that I'm talking about. When you shaped that board, did you know it was a magic board? Uh, it was based on his other, it was a 10-2. It was based on uh, the 10-2 that he won the XXL on. And um, just, you know, I keep pretty strong notes. I have, I've got a ton of templates, you know. I mean, most people that see my my shaping room, they're like, God, you got a lot of templates. I go, that's only half of them. The rest are at home. So um, I keep notes on all that stuff, all the all the guns that I make for guys. And Derek, Derek's funny in that he's been riding my boards for a long time. And of course he has health issues he has to deal with now. He's no longer able to surf big waves, but um, he, uh, you got guys that can, that can talk to you about design. You know, you're, you're writers. They're like, Oh, does this or does that? And Derek was like, uh, I go, how's that board? He goes, um, well, I don't like it. I go, what, what don't you like about it? Um, I don't know. It wasn't as good as the other one. That's about as in depth as he would get you know, but incredible surfer. Yeah. Um, so see. when, when you shaped that board though, my question's kind of about the magic board. Does the shaper know it's magic before it leaves the bay or do you have to wait for the feedback? I always wait for feedback. So yeah. they all, yeah. Okay. So you're just putting out your best product every time, but you can't tell that one actually turned out 
just right. You, you can, but it's like I don't like to I don't like to pat myself on the back until they until they ride it. You know, I want to have that interaction. Um, I want to have that with all my customers, be it you know a crazy big wave surfer or a guy that's just you know moving from that inter intermediate to you know a better surfer. I want to make it a better experience. I had uh, I had Derek and I do this quite a bit when I can. I had Derek's original board, which he still has when I made that board. So when I have the, when I can bring that board back in, which I do with quite a few of my customers, um, then I can, I can replicate it exactly. Right. But that board, so I don't know, he probably talked talk to you about it, but that flew out of his truck. He did a U-turn, came back and it was gone. So it's, it's in hiding somewhere in Northern California. Insane. If it ever makes it back into the lineup, maybe you'll, you'll see it again or somebody will. Yeah. I, tell you I about just it. think it's it's too hot to handle still. Totally. You know, somebody um, had it and they tried I me, mean, you know, he and, and the boys up north tried to find it. So it's it's undercover somewhere. Yeah. Um you still building boards for Joel Tudor? No, no. Joel and I we parted ways and he's working with some other guys and and uh we 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 <laughs> I I my analogy working with Joel is, is he's a fantastic surfer and we had kind of that that Charlie Brown and Lucy relationship from the Thanksgiving special where you know she wanted him to kick the football so I was Charlie Brown okay got it um I guess I mean the reason why I wanted to bring up Joel is just to illustrate the wide variety of boards that you build on a very high level from pointy thrusters to twinsers to guns to longboards you do everything well i appreciate that thanks um i i try to put the as much effort into everything that i build and not be a one-trick pony um and i i do believe that my boards are at that top quality in everything that i do which is crazy to think about well i i I don't get to surf as much as I used to. And again, as, as you get older, that's for most normal people, that's the way that, that it goes. Um, but um, in my heyday, I rode everything. And I learned how to surf in 69, 70 on a longboard and never really didn't have one. You know, there was always, right. always kind of play around with them. Um, but um, there's too much to tell in some ways. Uh, I still, when I, I still like to ride my shortboards. You know, my, my go-to boards, whether or not I'm successful, I'll add that right yeah. now. You know, 6'4", yeah. 6'6", six, six, um, is kind of my go-to. Um, I'm in the, the five-foot-and-under club predominantly. Um, that's just, those are facts. So what, um, what are you excited about building right now? Do you have any models that you're working on? Or, I mean, I think of the Twinser when I think of you to a certain degree, but what are you excited on and what are customers asking for? Well, the, um, let, me let me just say this up front. I didn't invent, invent the Twinser. Will Jobson did and did a phenomenal job. When I first saw that board and first saw someone riding, it was Martin Potter, like a lot of people did. And he was, he was going twice as fast as anybody else. And I was super impressed. So what I did, I was still competing um, in the PSAA longboard circuit. I made myself a Twinser longboard, oh, which wow. I still have. It's on the side of my house. It's literally right downstairs here. And it's all brown and battered. But I won a ton of contests on that board. Wow. And, like high performance longboarding? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, 
Chris Aaron's dubbed them Ferrari station wagons. And um, interesting. I think Porsche makes a Panamera, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So kind of similar. You know, um, this board's like two and five eighths, nine, just barely nine feet long. You know, okay. paper thin nose and tail, um, glass on fins, of course. And um, I put um, rail channels on the deck to stiffen it up a little bit. Okay. So that's kind of where it started. And I made them in short boards also. And, and um, we continued on from there. The most popular boards that I make are Twinsers, flat out. Probably 80% of what I make are Twinsers. And of that, they could be a rocket fish or they could be uh, a smaller Twinser egg or they could be the term that I dislike the most, a mid-range. I just call them surfboards, anything from 610 to 8 plus. And they're, they're so easy to ride. They, they work great on your backhand. Um, the biggest difference that I would say, and on the forehand also, but they're, they're again, user-friendly, and it's a matter of designing them correctly. Um, I made a ton of them at Rusty's when I was there. And it was interesting, and we didn't, we didn't take such precise measurements back in the you know, early, mid-90s. There were things, you know, you'd measure your rocker and, and that was before use of CAD programs and that type of stuff and, and cataloging what your numbers are. So you'd get, realistically and honestly, you'd get maybe two or three boards out of 10 that were good and you get maybe one that was magic. And in my case, that would be the one I'd ride into the ground in about a month and break. Yeah. So uh, times are different now and fin placement is critical with a Twinser, as, as anything else, you know, a thruster or a quad, if the fins aren't in the right place and you don't know how to change that, how to, how to move fins, and Rusty is a genius at that, and that's where I learned all of my information from, is you don't build a, a 510 thruster and an eight-foot gun and put the fins in the same place. Right. And I've seen that from really good shapers. Crazy. It's, it's like, it's not going to turn. Right. So, um, the, yeah, the Twinser is, is um, again, like I said, it's about 80% of what I build. I've got them completely dialed in. My customers love them from, you know, an intermediate surfer to an advanced surfer. And they work in a wide variety of surf. Can you define, what's the defining element of the Twinser? Um, balance. Fins have to be in the right place. I have, again, uh, Naked Viking makes my fins for those, my custom uh, Twinser set. Um, and they just, they feel great. They, they another, another analogy, because people don't understand. They think, well, a twin fin's going to be the same thing. And the twin fin is not. Uh, the Twinser fin design cleans up the water flow as it hits the main fins um, and takes that quirkiness that twin fins can have out. So that's why it works in so many different ways. For somebody who's never seen one, can you explain the Twinser? What's the setup? It looks like a twin fin. It's got a larger rear fin. The front fins or canard fins, as, as Will originally, Will Jobson uh, coined them, is a smaller fin that uh, just slightly overlapped with the, with the outside of the main fin. The cluster of the fins has to be set up properly. You, you don't want to have them too close to the rail or they can stick. Um, there's a couple of little secret things that I have in them that you'd have to put a straight edge to find out. So I'll just leave that at that for now. 
Um, but um, they, they, they're very smooth. Uh, the analogy is going to get to is like a sailboat. If you think about um, typical sailboat, it has a mainsail and it has a jib. The canard fin is the jib only, which enables you to go upwind, to steer the boat quickly and efficiently. That's what the canard fin does to a twin fin in the water. It's just, a, it's the same principle, but different surfaces. One's wind, the other one's water. Um, so it's specific to the fin setup and bottom contour. Does it change the tail outline at all, the rail outline? You can, it'll work on any tail um, okay. out there. The only, this goes with quads too, but I, I don't prefer to make them in like a squash tail you know, your typical shortboard, it'll work, but it won't work as well as like a rounded pin, um, a round tail or like a swallowtail. You wanna have something that gives you bite and drive. Can you incorporate them with channels? I do all the time. Yeah, I generally run a four channel setup with it. Um, it gives me a little panel where the fins are. So there's, there's not any turbulence created. Um, and, and I like to use, um, I use a single plug forward for the canard fin, and then I use future uh, boxes in the rears. Uh, then it feels like a glassed in fin. Got it. Um, we've talked about a lot about people that you've worked with. JS making his boards in um, America, working with Rusty, obviously Joel Tudor. Who do you have apprenticing under you um, or, or who have you had? Uh, Dan Mann uh, taught him how to pretty, pretty much shape. Dan's one of the best shapers in the world, in my opinion. Uh, I've got another guy on the East Coast, Brian Wynn. He's mm -hmm. in New Jersey, hockey player, um, good friend of mine. And, and I worked with him and showed him little tricks and, and ways to advance what he's doing. And those are predominantly them, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't have the time or, or the desire to bring people in and teach them how to shape. Um, I'm definitely kind of, you know, not a grumpy old man, but I'm kind of stuck in my ways when it comes to that. Um, and it's just time yeah. more than anything else. But um, those, those guys are, are respectful of, uh, what I build, and I'm equally as respectful to them. Dan, Dan made me a board last year, which is awesome. Um, he, he glassed it, did the whole thing, and it works great. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you, how often do you ride other shapers' surfboards? Um, I still do it, you know, and I, I think it's a, it's, um, it's a double-edged sword because not for riding it. I think that that's a great thing, but, but through the years I had seen, and, and this is common and you're, you're probably already aware of it, but surfboards got to a point, you know, five, 10, within the last five and 10 years, say that you'd go into a big factory and you'd see other brands boards in there. And I, I'm not a big fan of that at all. Yeah. And I understand why they do it. You know, there's, there's keeping up with the competition is another way you can look at it, but, there's kind of outright theft is a way to put it. And I've seen that too. And I'm not going to name any names, but I saw, I've, I've seen it. Crazy. So no, I, when I was uh, just getting back into shaping boards for myself. And at the time I rode boards from all kinds of good guys, 
you know, and, and I think you learn a ton that way. Yeah. You know, just like riding instead of, you know, the days I think for most surfers of, of, you know, I have one surfboard, I have a, I've got a six foot thruster and that's all I ride. And, and again, as you get older, that changes your, 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 um, there's so many different designs out there that you can have fun on that it really mm-hmm. opens it up. And that's, you know, getting back to your question of, you know, about me making all kinds of different boards. Um, I, I would get bored with the same thing. So I always wanted to take things out and, and go to extremes you know, to the point where maybe it didn't work that great, but there was something in that board that did. Right. Um, getting back to Joel, what we did, um, I made some boards for him when I was still at Rusty's and, you know, he and I knew each other from competing against each other and made him some five fin bonzers that he loved and made some eggs. So we went back into that. That's where that started. But we took, um, essentially took old designs and surfboards from the shortboard era where it started in the seventies. Um, design changed so fast. You know, the, the magazines, they only came out every three months and you'd always see new stuff. And always as a kid, you're excited and you're looking for it. But designs would come through, um, measurements weren't kept. You know, the standard way to get a board at that time and era was you, you, you know, go to your shaper and bring them a six pack of beer and, you know, drink a couple even as a kid and then you'd make a board and, and you know, you'd get, I don't know what the, the percentage was, but it wasn't high. You'd get one that was great and the rest were dogs. So there were a lot of good ideas at that time and all we did is refine everything which the the bottom line with that was put better bottoms in better foils better rails um more curve in the outlines because the boards were so straight in the beginning Mm -hmm. so they became easier to ride and they worked great that was that was the difference yeah yeah um You've spent a lot of your time over those decades building boards for other brands that became global brands. And in Rusty's case, obviously a clothing brand and a lot of other things. Do you ever wish that you would have dedicated more time to building the SK label? Well, yes and no. Um, I'm, I'm, I firmly believe that if you change anything that you did, you might be in a different, uh, a different area. Yeah. Better or worse, who knows? But you can't you can't look back and change them. So I don't concern myself about that. Um, I, of course, like any any person that creates a product, you know, that hand builds something. I've I've got an ego just like anybody else, uh, which I do my best to keep in check. Um, but I I believe in what I make. I know it's a good product, um, and that's my I'm satisfied with that. So, you know, again, I wish I had more energy. Yeah, that's that's if if I was 40, it'd be a different story. Sure. Um, You grew up in an era where, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on this, I'm sure. But you grew up pre-Surfline in Orange County and San Diego, places that have now um, quadrupled, I'm sure, in population and certainly tenfold in surfing population. But in the era you grew up in, there was elders who operated as authority in the lineup. And I think probably in the shaping business too, it kind of operated that way too, where you had to kind of come in, pay your dues, maybe take a couple licks. 
why is that an important tradition to uphold in the lineup or in surf business in general? I think it is in life. Um, the, I mean, I would never change the way that I grew up. And I, I, you know, started surfing in 69 and, and had a guy up the street from us that was a club member at Salt Creek, which was a private beach at the time. And I got to go in there and surf. And um, that was one of my predominant spots. And it took a long time to get, you know, chip away to, to be able to get away. If you weren't allowed to go surf the point, you sure weren't allowed to go surf gravels. Um, and you did take some licks, but you respected people that were older than you, that were better surfers than you. Um, and, and that's, it's the, you don't see that in life so much. I think you probably see it in sports, you know, from the coaching level where, you know, hopefully everything isn't just given to you and you have to earn it. And do you see, and do you still way, see it at the beach. Um, I don't, I don't think that violence is, is the answer, but I, I do think what's happened. I mean, to get back to your, your bringing up surf line and, and all that stuff. Um, I think times were better back then when I moved to San Diego, I moved down here by myself and it was still pretty heavily localized. Um, that being said, there were a lot of paper tigers back then. Sure. So, in my early years, well, out of eighth grade, I learned how to, uh, I started swimming uh, for high school level and playing water polo. And water polo was great, you know, toughened me up in a hurry. Yeah. You, you take licks in that sport quite a bit, but it also shows you that, you know, someone elbows you in the face or something, you can take it and, and you're not going to worry about it. So um, at that level, you know, as a teenager growing up, sometimes you had to stand up for yourself. So good, bad, and different, you know, it, it, um, you you run into experiences, you know, where maybe you want to take something back that you were involved in, but most people had it coming. So <laughs> do you still see it existing in, at the beach at all that level, a uh, certain respect for authority? Um, some places you do, you know, some of the reefs down here in San Diego are still that way, but overall, What's happened is there are so many people surfing now that it's, it's just, it's like a mob of people going into a stadium. You can't do anything to stop it. Yeah. That's you been know? my experience too. The other, you know, the other side of the coin is there's nothing worse than a grumpy old man out in the water. And I won't be that guy. I just won't do it. I don't know if I agree. The, the kids overrunning the lineup with no respect are also bad. I don't know who's worse. Oh, guaranteed. Guaranteed. But the, yeah. like I said, the area that I surf, they still respect, you know, their elders and it's, yeah. it's always been that way. And it's not always that way other places. Yeah. I agree with that mob mentality thing. Like I will paddle out, I'll, I'll paddle out and I'll see some injustice in the lineup or somebody acting out like a Grom, you know, whatever, back paddling and trying to catch every wave or burning some elder or whatever. And I'll get indignant about it and have this internal angst because it's different than the way that I grew up or different than what I think should be happening. But before I act out, I'll realize there's somebody else, another kid doing it and a third person doing it and a fourth person. And then I realize I'm the odd man out who doesn't think that any of this is okay. 
the mob and the vast majority of the people now have a totally different way of thinking. And I'm the anomaly. And then I'm like, I just need to paddle down the beach because I don't know what's even happening over here anymore. Well, um, you're still young and you're entitled to your opinion and your opinion's right. So it's, it's, we're in a time now where it, it truly is mob rule. You know, the, the soft top phenomenon is something else. Crazy. So to me, whether you want this or not, I'm going to give it to you. I want it. They're not surfers. They are, my, my nickname for them is activityists. And it, it, it was pre-COVID. It started in little groups of people that they're like, well, let's do something different. You know, let's, let's go to Costco or these boards are a hundred bucks. So I'm going to go get one of these. I'm going to go surf. And they, they're not to cut through all the bullshit. They're not surfers. Yeah. They, they came from a different background. They weren't like, let's put it like this. When you were a kid and you started surfing and you'd be in school and you knew you were going to go surf on Saturday. How, what did you think about until Saturday? That's all I, I didn't even, I wouldn't even do my assignments. Exactly. Yeah. Lockers for me in high school were, were book storage. Yeah. And I got through fine, but it's like, that's all I thought about. Yeah. And the, the people that, that have morphed into what's going on now, it's another, it's another thing. It's like bike riding or rock climbing or, you know, going to yoga the in the morning, golf, yeah. and then surfing. You got it. So you can't fault them for it because that's just, that's just how things have kind of come along. But they're, they don't have that, that thing. You know, yeah. They don't have a scope. They don't even know what it is. Yeah. Um, in wrap up, how do you maintain a high level of surfing at the age of 64? You try to get in the water as much as possible. And it's, it's very difficult. Um, bottom line for me is I had some health issues I had to deal with that kept me out of the water for a while. Uh, an injury last year. So I don't get to surf as much as I like. And the other, the, the biggest issue is the, the area that I like to surf is polluted almost all the time, radically Crazy. polluted. Like you couldn't go out there today. It rained the other night. We got a fair amount of rain here and the water is filthy. So do so, they close the beach or you just choose? They close the surf? beach. Yeah, okay. it was, it was absolute. Well, it, it's funny because you know, it's Imperial Beach. So somewhere from Imperial Beach to Coronado, Coronado is not dirty, even though it's a great big eddy. Yeah. You know? So people, people, um, they just kind of don't pay attention to it there, but it's dirty everywhere. It really is. You know, so um, I saw a thing uh, the other night on Cornwall in England. Mm -hmm. the water, there were, it was, it was drone footage and the water was so crystal clear and beautiful. You know, it reminded me of Laguna Beach or North L.A. Yeah, I've surfed there and it was cold, but it was, yeah, pristine. Yeah, just absolutely amazing. So, you know, those are those are all issues that we have to deal with. Is there a solution to this one? No, I don't think so for us. I don't no. think it's realistic, you know, to, to cut off that flow. There's millions of gallons of raw sewage going in the ocean five miles south of the border every single day of the year. Yep. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Um, pollution aside, do you do, how, how often are you getting in the water? 
Um, I had an injury that kept me out of the water for 11 months. Uh, I thought I was 40 instead of 62, and I, I hyperextended my shoulder. So uh, work, and I've got my other passion is fishing, so I wanted to make sure I could get back to that. Uh, and I got back in the water just before Thanksgiving, and um, not so much right now, to be honest with you. Okay. But it's getting better and I'm getting more time. So I'm looking forward to spending more time in the water. Um, Up until that injury, do you do any extracurricular exercise, working out activity? And how do you manage your diet? Uh, Diet is highly managed. Um, I did uh, from a dad's side of the family, I inherited diabetes and I was diagnosed about five years ago. So um, I was running out of energy quickly in the water and just overall not feeling good. So I had to change. Uh, We'd already been, my wife and I'd already been eating really clean, but I cleaned it up even more. So uh, prior to that, we went on a family vacation. My youngest daughter's super active. She teaches Pilates and yoga and we're in Sedona. We're trying to hike. I can't keep up with anybody. So he goes, you need to go to the doctor. And I'm, I only would use traditional Western medicines for when I would get hurt or break something. Uh, and then other than that, I've got a really good chiropractor who's a kinesiologist and he's put me back together for forever. But I went and did all my blood work and they're like, yeah, you're, you're about this close to going into a diabetic coma. So you got to wow. make some changes. So what we want to do is we want to put you on insulin and metformin and all these other drugs to counteract the bad issues from the other drugs. So I said, well, let me see if I can change it with diet. And I did. So I was able to get back to being pre-diabetic. The problem with diabetes in particular is there's damage done that you don't even know about. Um, You get neuropathy, you get, in my case, I get an an issue with one of my eyes. So I have to have injections in that eye to keep my vision clear. Well, like steroid or what, what are they injecting? Um, it is, uh, I can't remember the name of the drug. Oh, Alia is what I think I use. And what it does is it prevents, um, capillaries and blood vessels from growing in your eye. Um, because the problem is it creates too much pressure, affects your vision. And, um, as that happens, your, the red blood cell, the blood cells, they, they split into white and red blood cells. The white ones act like white paint on your retina. So if you don't take care of that, you will go blind. Got it. So I have that under control. And those were pretty intense issues to take care of. Yeah. Sounds like cancer, but you know, it's another thing that you have to deal with. So in my case, I've been, I've been really lucky to get on top of it and I'm able to get back to a fairly full schedule. Yeah. Um, that's all very good information. A lot of this part of the conversation in these podcasts is a reminder for listeners to go get stuff checked out. Um, so re- quickly run me through the diet. What do you restrict in your diet? And what does um, it look like? You said you eat, eat clean, but what does that mean? Yeah, we eat uh, as, as organically as possible, grass-fed beef, um, you know, a uh, very clean farm, you know, farm to table essentially is where we're at. So food costs are a lot more, uh, but the quality of the food is a lot better. And uh, even pre-COVID, we, we, my wife and I, uh, our kids are grown and we, we, live, we live alone. So 
she cooks and I clean. But um, really, really just good clean food, um, nothing out of control, no processed sugars, uh, no alcohol. Um, Full stop, no alcohol? I'm sorry? Full stop, no alcohol? Or yes, alcohol yeah. moderation. Got it. Um, I've tried to get on the grass-fed beef program. It just doesn't taste as good. It's not fatty enough, you know? Um, and I get the best yeah. quality stuff, and it's just mm -hmm. not fatty enough for me. Yeah, I could, I could agree with that. Um, but it's, you know, it's for me, luckily it's like a light switch, you know, any, any like drinking, I wasn't a heavy drinker at all, but, um, you know, consistent probably would be the best way to put it. And I, I just turned it off like a light switch. Just because the health mattered more. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I did, I'm doing dry January right now, not drinking for the month and mainly because, the holiday season, I just overindulged for three months and I just kind of needed to reset. But throughout the rest of the year, I don't overindulge, but I drink consistently. And what I find the benefit from taking a month off is I feel like there's an accumulative buildup of the alcohol uh, from just consistent, moderate drinking that creates like a weight or a malaise. I mean, there's a, certainly a physical weight that I pack on too but just like a general malaise that weighs me down and I'm never getting drunk, never missing a meeting, getting up early, doing my physical activity, but there still is this malaise. And so doing a full stop that gets all lifted and you just feel just a little bit sharper, a little bit lighter, a little bit more live, you know, and it's, I think it's just an accumulative because on a day to day, the amount isn't enough to create the malaise but the accumulative factor is kind of what I'm noticing. Yeah. I, I, I could definitely see that. Yeah. yeah. We got, it was, it was, uh, after I'd been diagnosed and, you know, my, and my wife stays on top of me, she's like, okay, well, you know, you're not going to drink anymore and yada, yada, yada. And at the time, and you know, the last few years, it's like, like, I really like craft beers. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't a heavy drinker prior to that. You know, there was a day, you know, decades ago, yeah. just like all of us, you know, that did different things, but, um, we had two, we two refrigerator, one in the garage, which, which the refrigerator was pretty well stocked with great craft beers. And I'd have like a pint, you know, or two max a week. My wife would share some of it. She doesn't drink at all. She would just literally have like a shot glass and, Oh, that tastes good. That tastes horrible kind of thing. And, and she's like, well, we'll cut all that out. She, and she's a CPA. So she gave all the beers in the refrigerator to her clients. Perfect. So I missed out a little bit, but again, I literally, I don't miss it now. Good. You know, and it's been, been like five years, but it's, it's not, it's funny when you talk to people, when, you know, they're like the typical thing was to bring your shaper beers. Right. And I'd be, you know, that still happens. And it's funny. It just happened a couple of weeks ago. And, and they're like, well, do you drink? I go, no, but I'll bring that to a good home. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, are you okay? Yeah. I just don't drink. Yeah. It's not That's funny. It didn't wake up in the gutter. Right. You well, know? the thought, the thought of the gift is always appreciated. I'm sure. Absolutely. Um, final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode? Last surfboard I rode was my, uh, it was a, it was a sting twinser six, four, um, 
21, two and three quarters is kind of standard dimensions. And I definitely was a Sting disciple. Um, I met Ben Ipa in 75 and I saw his whole crew of guys. I was over for the US championships at El Moana and the level of surfing was light, light years ahead. I got to see his whole crew in addition to like the regular guys that rode single fins over there. Bobby Owens was a great surfer, Michael Ho. Um, but to watch Ipa and his group and Bertelman, and, and it was phenomenal. The surf was incredible, was unbelievable. Out of all of them, Ben was right there with them. Wow. So he had the board that he had, you, you, you'll see it in pictures. It was a flame sting. It was 5'10", 24 inches wide, three and a half inches thick. And Rick Hammond shaped it. I've seen it. Is that the famous shot? The water yeah. shot where he's doing the big cutback right in yeah, front of that's it? That's it. Had a, had a bevel on the rail. Um, another guy that I want to mention that's, that's super important is uh, Midget Smith. And as a kid, um, Midget was, he was a, a mentor. He was one of my key mentors. And it wasn't like, you know, pat you on the shoulder and say, you know, come on, we're going to go surf. It was like, get the hell out of here, Grom. You know? <laughs> when him and, and some of the other local, you know, bigwigs at San Clemente Pier would paddle out, you were out, you got out of the water. So I ended up working uh, in the shop, in natural design surf shop fixing dings and, you know, then behind the counter kind of thing. And, you know, continually getting to be a better surfer, but it was, it was, I wouldn't say it's a struggle because I, I, I did get um, competent pretty fast, but he always, his, his way of, of mentoring was like, you suck. Right. You know, and uh, we were at a contest in San Miguel and he was, he was the head judge and we sit, got to sit down and catch up and talk. And I, I thanked him and I, I'm really big on letting people know what uh, they mean to me at, you know, at the age that I'm at now, whether that makes them uncomfortable or not. And Midget, you know, I, I told him, I said, you know, you, you taught me a lot. And he goes, I always knew you'd come out. All right. So that was a big deal. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, he probably did um, put off a lot of people with that attitude and maybe they have different ways of learning, but he also knew that like maybe yourself or certain people would push through it. And that's the exact type of discipline that he was trying to instill. Yeah. So that's a good story. I think one final thought um, talking about the Ben Ipa crew. When I asked you, do you ride other people's surfboards? It's like you can almost have too many points of information and stimulation and reference, and you're trying to do too many things at once. I think the greatest strides are often made with somebody just kind of hyper-focusing on something and not, yeah, maybe these other things also work, but ignore those other things because I'm hyper-focused on this thing. And then thankfully he had a couple of team riders who really understood that and they worked, they had a synergy and they developed something to, you know, it's kind of fullest expression. And that's where we make a bunch of big strides in surfing oftentimes. Exactly. You're exactly right. So that's a cool moment. It's a great moment. Yeah, it was, it was unforgettable. The, the best part was, um, 
because I'm in contact with Duke. Um, he gets his boards glassed at Dark Arts. A friend of mine shop down here does the, the carbon epoxies. Yep. And we got to spend some time together. And both he and Akila know um, that I make stings, but I don't make them for customers. And very upfront about that. You know, mine are, mine are different than theirs, but the basic board is exactly the same. Uh, and and we got to talk and they, they to- totally appreciate, you know, my vision and what I'm doing. Uh, but I tell them the history when they were when they were young kids when I met their dad. Um, so it's it's pretty cool that, that what they're doing they both carry on the tradition of their father, you know, who yeah. was I mean such an icon. I mean they carry the tradition and they are doing their own version of it. Exactly. And making contributions. So it's mm-hmm. great. Well, excellent, Stu. This has been a very educational and illuminating conversation. So thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for your time, David. Yeah, thrilled. You're welcome. Epic and long overdue conversation with Stu Kenson. This is the longest I've ever chatted with Stu and um, we overlap in various parts of our lives and we've crossed paths, but everybody has nothing but great things to say say about Stu. So I'm just thrilled uh, to finally get this opportunity to really chat. So thank you so much, Stu. Obviously, I recommend that you, the listener, get a board from Stu. I think that through this conversation, The proof is in the pudding and you know exactly why you should be getting a board from him. So on Instagram at SK underscore shape, he doesn't do a ton of promotion or dedicate a bunch of time towards a website or maintenancing any of that stuff, but he's easy to find. Just DM him on Instagram and he will get back to you. And again, you can work one-on-one with an icon to get a Ferrari under your feet. So pretty epic. Thank you, Stu, for all the education and thank you listeners for all of your support through the form of um, subscriptions for five bucks a month. That goes a huge long way, of course, to supporting our sponsors like athleticgreens.com surf, of course, Vans for the triple crown of surfing and realwatersports.com. There's others as well. NVS Fins, which Stu mentioned, um, has been longtime partners. Need essentials for wetsuits and outerwear, all that stuff. So thank you to you all. Thank you to listeners. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. We just dropped episodes late in the week of Spit and the Grit is coming tomorrow. And then, of course, we'll be back here next week with new episodes of everything. Feast your ears. And then, of course, this is David Scales saying, get back into the ocean, share some waves, and, of course, shred on.
Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And don't forget to post your job for free at linkedin.com slash surf. That's linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 